The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. On this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, we are joined by one of the top event production and coordination groups in the country, Mr. Eric Williams of Special Services Group. He is the first call for some of the biggest promoters in entertainment and public events. Eric is a seasoned event producer, everything from audio, lighting, tour management. From New York to Los Angeles, he is one of those men working hard behind the scenes. Just a few of the acts he's worked with would include Eddie Murphy, REO Speedwagon, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Wilson Phillips, Foreigner, even Heads of State. Eric Williams, thank you very much for making the time. Well, listen, it's a, it's a pleasure. I have done uh, a lot of uh, these sort of uh, interviews. So basically, you and I will talk for a while, and then uh, the first caller will call in, and, and we'll take a call from them. Is that <laughs> Some, something like that. Like that, okay. And, and you, I don't see any co-hosts, so you're going to fly this plane by yourself. I'm flying solo. Well, okay. You're, I, you're kind of like the, the co-pilot, right? Right. No, it's, it's me and you on this little journey. <laughs> and, and it's good because I noticed the uh, blue LED lights have started blinking outside. So I guess this is, uh, this is the cue for us to begin this uh, journey here. <laughs> That's right. Right. Well, you have a, a kind of similar sense of humor to a guy that we interviewed on this show, James Schneider. And, I know James Schneider. And, and how did you meet James Schneider, jazz legend. Ja he is a jazz legend. But you know, it's not the jazz legend part that I really dig about Jim and the fact that he is a renowned expert in Hammond B3 organs and Leslie's, uh, you know, the sound I really love. And, I, and, and our appreciation of the Hammond B3 organ Jim is a, uh, a, I mean, a fountain of knowledge and listening to him tell stories. And also he is a piano master, you know, a, a renowned Steinway technician. And so he and I trade stories and uh, get all excited about talking about those things. Jim Schneider and myself are almost daily customers at Jay's Cigars over on uh, Collier and DeForest Ferry Road, and so uh, we smoke cigars, watch sports, and talk about uh, pianos and, and women and the road. <laughs> Jay's is a one-of-a-kind place. It's a great place. What do you like about cigars? Well, uh, cigars have been part of my life since I was pretty young. I had a blues master, but a friend of mine, who turned me on to the joys of pipe and cigar smoking, and you know, a pipe requires uh, both hands present at all times and lighting and relighting and tamping and everything. So a cigar uh, allows you a, a little bit more freedom. And uh, I learned cigars and cigaring from some of the masters uh, in Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco. And then I moved at a certain point to, Los, uh, excuse me, to New Orleans where I bought into a cigar store. For a while so cigars has been part of my adult life pretty much since i've been an adult 
before we get to adulthood, where does the story begin for Eric? The story begins, and I got to say, I'm the luckiest guy in the world or the most fortunate in, in that I grew up to become the guy that I wanted to be when I was a kid. I wanted to be the guy running around crazy, trying to organize things and make, make things happen and create an interesting environment for people. And I like to think that I came up with the word edutainment, although I'm sure I didn't, but it sounded good. So I use it because the events that that myself and, and the people that I work with produce, educate and entertain. So I kind of slang that together and it became edutainment. Everybody says, so how did you start out in this, in this uh, wild and crazy way of putting on events and, and living your life? And I always say, well, you start as the kid in third grade who will help the teacher thread the film strip projector and then I started saying that, and I was talking to people who absolutely did not know what a film strip projector was. So, but you know, hopefully your peeps will, Paul. <laughs> so you end up being the, the guy who helps organize things. And I, I was really fortunate that I went to the largest high school in Los Angeles, was involved in events and student government, was the student representative to the Board of Education. And so putting on large scale events occurred pretty early in my life. And uh, then I went to Pepperdine University, I'm proud to say, well known for its volleyball teams. And uh, the fact that there's that big blue thing right down the road from it. So I majored in uh, scuba diving and volleyball appreciation and started working on those well known trashy beginning reality show things like battle of the network stars and celebrity challenge of the sexes and and you know shows like that and it really has developed into a pretty interesting career everything from rock and roll bands to uh corporate giants and religious leaders to uh a couple of presidents so it, it's worked out nicely and i'm I'm proud of the people that I work with. They're the most wonderful people alive. And we never say die, and we put on some great shows. There's so much that goes into a show or any event. You know, people, they see the, the two hours, but do, do people have any idea what goes into a live event? No, it's like, you know, uh, everybody says, uh, don't inquire about what it takes to pass a bill or to make sausage. <laughs> and, and doing doing events is kind of the same thing. I always say the answers and the information that you come up with when you do your advance and logistics, the answers don't matter. That's just information in a spreadsheet cell. It's the questions you ask, the questions that lead to more information about what it is you really want to put on. You know, the stage could be 60 feet wide, 40 feet deep and six feet high. Or it can really conform to what fits best in, you know, a venue so that people can really observe what's going on in a almost sometimes 360 degree platform. But the if you're doing a political campaign, you've got to get everybody involved from the point of uh, buying into what it is you're doing. You don't want anybody contra to the to the cause. 
if it's corporate, you want to keep it enclosed and make sure that you produce the best, um, what we call art after the event so that, you know, uh, it's not just the quality and quantity of the impressions, but, you know, we always say perception is reality. So you try and make it so that everybody gets the point you're trying to put across. And in rock and roll, you know, you want it to sound and, and look good for the venue that you're in. And, and, and we want to make it so that promoters can realize what they want to realize out of it. Maybe take people to buy tickets to the next show before they go home. And I always say that uh, nobody goes home whistling to the lights, but they do go home whistling to how that show sounded. So <laughs> we, uh, we try and make it a lasting impression. And, and I see that, you know, uh, social media, you know, people bring up, wow, man, I was at that show that one time. And I say, yep, I remember it, uh, that we went home a winner that night. So people who do this type of work, event production, do they usually fall into it? Is it something they're looking to do? What would you say is the norm? Everybody has a different door in. From the theatrical aspects of things, you know, there's people who are frustrated actors and actresses who, uh, or in these days we just say actors, who, you know, want to get involved in the theatrical arts and then end up being a stage manager like me, or they end up wanting to indulge their creative aspects in terms of carpentry or set design or costuming or makeup. Believe it or not, on the very beginning, aside from the fact that I was majoring in radio and TV, in my second year of college, I suddenly realized that I was getting rather brawny. So I used crowd control and security to get in the door of doing these events. You know, people study marketing. Uh, I, I know somebody that, you know, thought they'd be a media buyer and they ended up being an event coordinator. So there's no there there's sometimes a roar of the crowd there's sometimes nobody noticing what you do and your contributions really make a difference the people i work with are without a doubt the most wonderful hard-working never ever gonna give up people alive i mean uh, if i used to say if i was going into battle uh, I would take a bunch of stagehands, and you see those commercials if stagehands ran the world. Well, trust me, I, I'd, I'd trade stagehands, uh, I'd trade politicians for stagehands any day. Hmm. So I, I think we would do quite well. Would you say for people who do this type of work, it's almost like a fraternity? or? Oh, it's absolutely a fraternity. I don't think you're drawn to it, I think you're called to it. Or is that the same thing? But anyway... It's a calling. It's and the people, you know, you can sit down with somebody from a you know a totally different area of entertainment production, and in a few minutes they realize that it's the uh, the uh, sound that that duct tape makes as you're ripping the tape off the uh, off the spool, or you know the fact that you carry a uh, Leatherman on your belt, or you know it's just. There's commonalities that we all share. And you can tell a production guy in an airport, you know, just the way the guy is walk or guy or gal is walking, 
you know, the way that they, uh, you know, what they have with them. If they're carrying an Anvil briefcase with a bunch of stickers on it, that's, that's uh, you know, telltale sign. <laughs> but um, it, I, I think that, the, without a doubt, the people that I work with are the most creative, hardworking, good souls alive. When you think about this world, this topic, the name Bill Graham would be in some of the listeners' head. Tell us about Bill Graham. Well, Paul, upon his rock, we have built this church. <laughs> uh, there is no doubt that anyone who plies this trade owes an incredible debt to Bill Graham. Bill Graham, of course, a, uh, a refugee from uh, the Nazi regime, lost relatives, came to America. He had this really great uh, move. Uh, he went up to the Borscht Belt above New York City, and he would have this thing where he would go to the bank, get a bunch of money, and he would buy your paycheck at the end, because you're up in the country, up in the Catskills, so he would buy your paycheck from you, and it would cost you a dollar and the change. So if you made $21.50, he made a buck 50, and he got the 20. Hey, bring all the checks back to the bank on Monday morning. And, uh, you know, he would, uh, he would clean up because you can't leave. You know, everybody works long shifts in those country clubs. Of course, that was 100,000 years ago. But Bill Graham, uh, through his uh, building of the rock scene, in New York, and of course, what he did in uh, San Francisco, beginning with the Mime Troupe, and uh, then founding Bill Graham Presents, and Days on the Green, and I could go on and on. But he really had the beginning ideas of what to do with a rock and roll tour through his catering, his hospitality, uh, his security, his just everything about putting on a rock and roll show. You would walk into Oakland Stadium, the doors would open up, and the entire field would be full of balloons. Or you go into the Fillmore, and there's a basket of apples. And so everybody would take an apple, have an apple, and uh, that's how you start your evening. <laughs> and uh, just the little things. And uh, I had uh, just a small amount of dealings with him because my career was based in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, his domain was in San Francisco. I have said quite often that my career would have taken a, a different turn, and I don't regret much, but I should have just sat at the door of Bill Graham Presents until he hired me. Certainly people that were with Bill Graham for, you know, almost 40 years started in a far less auspicious way. So, you know, maybe that would have worked. But I eventually got to meet him through a very interesting situation. Uh-huh. Well, what would that be? Well, at the time of Live Aid, July, uh, would that be the 15th of 1984, uh, I was out on the road with REO Speedwagon, and REO Speedwagon had, uh, at that time, or within a short period there before or after, had the number one song in the country, the world, I guess, and uh, I Can't Fight This Feeling. So REO, because REO was managed by a very well-known and respected manager, and, and because, you know, REO was a long-standing American rock and roll band, was, we were invited to go to Live Aid. 
So um, the we got in there the night before, and of course you arrive into town, you get everything into your hotel room, and then you receive this information that you're being called on the carpet to visit the uh, the potentate, Bill Graham himself. So we get ready and we go over. I get everybody together. We get on the tram shuttle and uh, we go over to the embassy suites, which was Bill Graham presents headquarters for his presentation of Live Aid in Philadelphia. And so I get there with the band. And I get the band all in. We start, everybody starts talking. And there's this incredibly beautiful girl which, you know, did not escape my notice, and I was totally knocked out. <laughs> and um, so we talked for a little while, but, you know, I had a band to wrangle, and I get the band together, and we, we go back to the hotel. Throughout the course of the night, uh, I mean, stories upon stories of, you know, because every rock and roll band that's uh, on the road in Able is, uh, is there. We brought Cheap Trick along with us, and uh, we had made arrangements. The two songs that Ario was going to play was going to be uh, Roll With The Changes and uh, I Can't Fight This Feeling. So for Roll With The Changes, whenever we were playing anywhere, we would invite, you know, friends, family, rock and roll bands. Uh, I, I even had a woman on stage in Birmingham, Alabama, who was running for president of the Southern Christian Lebanese Women's Association. <laughs> And I like to think that Mrs. Abersia won that election because we had her up on stage, everyone must have, including her entire family. So we're at Live Aid, and uh, we get it together. We've got the Beach Boys, Paul Schaefer, Cheap Trick, many family members, and uh, we're, we're playing, we're, you know, we, they started, the band started out with I Can't Fight This Feeling, and then went into Roll With The Changes, and it began the big sing-along, and you could see me there, uh, you know, so I'm singing live, uh, back up at Live Aid and grabbing Kevin Cronin's guitar and uh, Rick Kelly, one of the best-known tour managers, uh, was handling Gary Richrath's guitar. And um, so we, we finished Live Aid and that night and got on a plane, and I think we were on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and at seven o'clock, we were in Cleveland playing that night. And it was a, a magic 24 hours. I still think it's the hottest day I've ever <laughs> experienced in my life. So anyway, it's 1984. So the years go by and, uh, you know, I'm just going along. And uh, a buddy of mine says, listen, there is a show in San Francisco for this big benefit. And uh, they'll fly up. And they'll put you up in this really cool house in Berkeley. And then you go stage manage the show. And, uh, you know, everybody will take care of you. And then, you, you, you know, we'll go to, uh, you know, uh, go get a bite to eat afterwards and everything. I said, you're leaving one thing out. He goes, yeah, did I mention it was a benefit show? I said, ah, what the heck? I'm off this weekend. You know, let's rock. So I get up there to San Francisco. I get to the Masonic, which is a really great classic place for shows and presentations in San Francisco. And I walk into the production office and there's the girl. Uh -huh. So <laughs> needless to say, the story ends well. And if I jump ahead, you know, about a year, although 
the best part was that night. But nonetheless, if I jump ahead about a year, she and I are living in San Francisco. So she uh, had continued as Bill Graham's assistant. And then after Bill's passing, she was the you know predominant uh, uh, queen bee at Bill Graham Presents. So living with the queen bee was, was quite the thing. So every so on, you know, there'd be a show and uh, we would, you know, we'd say, well, listen, you know, we go to the Fillmore and we just walk right in. So that night in question, Little Feet's playing. And you know what? If you don't like Little Feet, you probably shouldn't be listening to Paul's bro- uh, podcast, right? Yes. Little Feet is uh, all that's great American rock and roll. So Amen. we're, we're sitting, we go up in the spotlight like Covey that was there, which served as a spotlight position and the uh, upper box. And uh, the manager comes in, looks at us and says, hey, you guys mind if Carlos uh, sits with you guys? So, you know, of course, you know, come on in. So Carlos and and, and uh, I, I guess I'm going to say her name at this time. Okay. Rita, Rita Gentry and I are sitting talking. And Carlos, at that time, this had to be about 1994, Carlos did not have a record deal. Carlos was sort of floundering about, although, I mean, it's Carlos Santana, so that kind of gets you a good reservation at any restaurant. So he was, he was kind of hanging out and everything. And so I s- said, so what are you up to? He says, I get messages from Bill Graham in heaven. And I am producing this show. I'm writing this music that Bill and, and this must have been right after Jerry Garcia died. So Jerry and Bill are sending me messages and, and also from the angel Metatron. So I go, really? Now, Carlos Santana, if you ever sat and talked to him, he's the most sincere guy. You could be in a room, you could be at a football game. And you're going to think that you're by yourself with Carlos. He's, he's got that thing going. So he takes out of his pocket this thermographic fax paper. Remember how faxes used to be on that, like, just a step above tissue paper? Right, right. Okay, so he's, and, and I'm looking at it, and it's got electronic lines, just lines up and down. And he says, I take this, and I transpose these electronic signals from Bill and Jerry into music. And the angel Metatron faxes it to me on Tuesday nights at midnight. Wow. So I said, really? I said, let me see that. So I'm looking at it and the manager pops his head in and says, Carlos, the guys in the band want you to come play the, uh, the encore with them. Okay. Carlos goes, yeah, sure. No problem. I think you guys have one of my Paul Reed Smith guitars here because I can't play anything else on stage, you know. So anyway, so Carlos goes down and I take the fax paper and I put it in my pocket. So Rita looks at me and says, you're going to need to give that back or at least give it to me. I said, no. So we're in the car and she's uh, doing her very best, yeah, 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 uh, to try and get me to come up with the uh, fax paper. So every Tuesday night for the next six weeks, 
I took the phone cord, took the yellow cable out of the fax phone cord, put it back in, and sent Carlos a fax <laughs> to that number up on his uh, fax transmission. And, and I did this for like an hour at midnight every Tuesday night for six weeks. So I figure, you know what, no harm, no foul. This can't be that bad, right? So Rita is putting up with this because she figures no harm, no foul. It can't be that bad. Uh, so anyway, at uh, uh, a certain point, I moved to New Orleans and Carlos goes into the studio and cuts the album Supernatural with the Rob Thomas hit Smooth and about six or eight other incredible songs on it. And one day I get this phone call. Uh, it's Rita. She says, tomorrow morning at the newsstand, you'll be able to pick up the Rolling Stone magazine with Carlos on the cover. I said, oh, that should be good. She says, don't say anything to anyone and call me back. Okay. So... I get up the next morning, I go, and there's the story of how Carlos wrote this album, how he got fans, fax transmissions from the Angel Metatron, and all of these things. Now, I'm going to tell you something right now. I'm sure there's a an attorney somewhere that can take a look at my phone bill and realize that I deserve royalties for having <laughs> co-written the album Supernatural. But in a twisted way, that's, that's my Bill Graham association. And Rita and I are still great friends to this day. She runs, uh, along with other very gifted people, the Bill Graham Foundation that does wonderful things for people and uh, other musicians elsewhere, all over. Very interesting, and you make a heck of a case. <laughs> yes. And if you are an attorney and you think that I have some uh, grounds for a suit, you will be the 101st attorney to hear that story and the, actually the first uh, who wants to take it on. But, you know, sure, why not? <laughs> so doing the line of work that you do, what does someone like you do with an overzealous fan? Yeah. How do you handle that? You know, um, it's starting out in crowd control and learning that you are not a bouncer and you're, you're about access and i have some friends that are the tops in in the crowd control business throughout the world and of course with the horrible things that now go on at at large events the overzealous fan usually can get uh looped into a couple of groups you know there's somebody that's just all messed up you know they're 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 messed up on drugs or alcohol and, uh, you know, they're, they're just, you know, spending time out of mind. And, you know, I remember uh, working the barricade at the Fabulous Forum in Los Angeles and working a Parliament and P-Funk show. And, you know, somebody six foot five, 260, comes roaring down the aisle. And, you know, you look at the guy next to you and go, brother, we got to stop that guy from, uh, you know, getting up on stage. That's one. Two, you get somebody who is just a fan and, and just is not channeling the right way to engage the performers. And this could be true in protest. This could be, you know, whether you're at a political event or, or you're at a corporate thing where somebody thinks, you know, this corporation has done me wrong. The trick is not working those events. And not having to deal with it. But if you do, basically, you're there to control access. 
You're there to say yes as much as possible. Because without fans, there'd be no rock star. Right. And, you know, without protest, there would be no political process here in America. So you, you try and, uh, you know, diffuse the situation. I mean, many times somebody would jump up on stage, guy or girl, and I'd grab them around the waist and dance them right off, you know, do it, <laughs> do a little twist, uh, you know, do the ho hokey pokey and turn yourself around and, you know, dance them right off the stage into the arms of the uh, other crowd control guys and let them throw out, throw them out. But it's, um, it's, it's something where as positive as you could be, it's not negative. You don't want to give a, you know, a forearm shiver to somebody's head, knock them out and drag them off. Although, you know, you, you got to do what's best. You, you, you take a lump, you take a punch, you take a shove, and you hope that you protect the people you need to protect. Fortunately, when you're working for the President of the United States, you have the best trained bodyguard service in the history of the world. So, uh, you know, just get yourself in the right position for somebody else to grab them. When you do an event like that, are you working side by side with the Secret Service, I imagine? Yeah, as the guy who pins the microphone on the POTUS or the POTUS or First Lady or uh, any other dignitary, you're right there in the line of fire. And fortunately, uh, and my friends with, uh, uh, that have uh, worked long and hard over many political campaigns, uh, ranging from mayoral, gubernatorial, uh, and, and, and Congress, and all the way up to the president, uh, know that, that we are the benefit of uh, people watching our backs. But someone like me has been trained on what to do, uh, what to build alongside the podium. I, I have worked with the presidential podium, which is a more substantial than some apartments I've had. And, um, you know, what to do just in case there would be something terrible happen. Interesting. I, I worked with uh, the technical director of the Secret Service, a guy who I affectionately called M because he had all of the really cool gadgets. And my gig bag and his gig bag were sitting next to each other. And I said, I don't suppose that if I got them mixed up and ended up with your... He said, believe me, my bag would know that uh -huh. it's in the wrong hands. So, yeah, you, you do get a certain amount of training, but the basic premise is uh, leave that sort of business to the best trained bodyguard service in the history of the world. I see. They're wonderful people, and they are constitutionally mandated, and they know what they're doing, and they're not there to have a good time. On the note of having a good time, I'm going to ask an ethical question. You're a red-blooded male. What does a man in your position do when a very attractive member of the opposite sex is implying that something very fun could happen <laughs> if she is given access to something that she thinks is very fun as well? Well, this is the year 2019, and this year and, and the preceding probably 10 years, my answer is uh, quite a bit different than it was in 1985. <laughs> Very diplomatic. And that suggestion has probably been made to me, oh, uh, three or four hundred times. I see. Including the kicker that all I had to do was introduce them to the re really intended 
target of their affection or interest. Them days are gone forever, man. Let me tell you, you don't ever want to be a person of influence, a person of responsibility, a person of... Man, I sound really old right now, don't I? No, no. <laughs> uh, you don't want to be the guy who makes the big mistake anymore. I, I worked an event this weekend here in Atlanta with a incredible... It was, it was, the event was for beautiful women. And um, I, I think I resembled more of a... Uh, a uh, uh, a, a monk than a, uh, you know, the alpha male that I, I really am. It happens. It happens on a daily basis. And you don't want, you, you don't anymore want to trade physical affection for anything. Yeah. So not no mo. But boy, let me tell you, back in the day. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I listed a lot of bands and I didn't even list all of them. And also people. Who was the biggest pleasure to work for or with that our listeners wouldn't know? Well, that's, you know, I'd say that's a question I get asked a lot, and there's a lot of different answers. I think the biggest rock star in the world is William Jefferson Clinton. And uh, the president, I, I don't know one person who's ever had anything to do with him that wasn't totally completely enamored with the concept of working for him. Now, I absolutely do know people who don't agree with what he did, does, said, says, but I can tell you this, that the guy has, it's the, it's the two-handed handshake where he takes your hand and puts his hand over it and says and, and, and says something which leads, leads you to believe that he absolutely does care. I have worked for rock and roll bands who uh, five guys rolling down the road and their crew and you and, and everybody else and you're a family. You know how people smell when they sweat. You know what makes them laugh. You know what makes them cry. I have uh, worked with people through their addictions. You know, I've scraped people off the floor, lifted them, and uh, put them in their bunks. And, uh, you know, so the word favorite, I mean, who's cute and fun to be with? Well, they all are. They're rock and roll stars. There's corporate leaders that have inspired many people through, you know, talking about, you know, the way to succeed in the world. So I, I would say that the president is, is one that if I could pick anybody I'd see again, it would be him. Bill Clinton. Absolutely. All right. Now, I, now, I've worked for others, but that's my that really is my answer. Yeah. So what is in the future with Eric Williams? Oh, well, you don't ever want to talk about something that, um, that hasn't happened yet. With me, it's projects that, you know, lead more to creativity. I work with a bunch of different people who... Uh, you know, I mean, it's nothing more than reading a dictionary in front of others. And it's, you know, 100,000 people. And it's not very interesting, but it's wildly profitable. And then you, you know, do something that is day in, day out, uh, really exciting and really challenging. And I, I, I really think even at my advance, you know, it's not the years, it's the miles and I've been ridden hard and put away wet. So 
I, I'd like to think that the best days are ahead of me and exciting projects do exist. It, if you asked me a year ago, I probably would have said Woodstock, right? How yeah. right would I have been? So, Because I did Woodstock in 1994, so I really had a lot of interest in trying to make that Woodstock project happen. And wow. it didn't. But I, I don't have any proper nouns or really exciting things, but you know what? On a daily basis, things pop up and pop off, too. So there's some good stuff down the road. I've been doing this thing lately, and I've been getting really good feedback from listeners where I do like a rapid-fire question. Really? Yeah. That sounds terrible, go, but go ahead. Okay. <laughs> the first thing that Eric Williams does in the morning is um, rub arnica on strategic joints on my body so they won't hurt. If you had to pick a last meal. A last meal. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it would be um, it would be a large chunk of tuna because oh, yeah. I am a religious fisherman. Fisher, fishing is my religion. Ah. Uh, you know, another passion along with cigars. But um, I've always wanted to try and figure out a way to inject live tuna with soy sauce so that when they came up, they're just ready to put on ice, carve, and eat. That's my last meal. That is my fish of choice. There it is. Love tuna. Best place you've ever gone fishing? You know what? I, the best place? I have fished all over the world. Everything from Alaska to Patagonia, from Dubai to, you know, a, a puddle in a, in, a, in a road. And I'm really the kind of guy that, you know, sent me out in a fishing boat. and I really... I can make a great, great thing happen. I've had great days in terrible locations, and I've been skunked where you think there's got to be a school of fish the size of Montana under that water. <laughs> but, you know, but one thing I do want to say, I've tried fishing under a, a, uh, a bunch of debris off the coast of Central America, and we got to do something about cleaning up this joint. Yeah. I mean, the ocean is not where it needs to be a trash dump. And, and that's where my worst fishing is. Because mm -hmm. you get really, you feel horrible. Depressing. You know, yes, yeah, it's, it's absolutely terrible. Eric Williams' all-time favorite cigar. El Rey de Mundo Robusta Larga. Give me those, and I'm a happy man. Although, I mean, you know, that's like all-time great cigar, all-time great bottle of wine. All, you know, it depends on what you ate, who you're, who you're with. If you want to have a great cigar, get some great people around you and, and have a good time talking about it. I mean, what makes a good cigar? Good friends. <laughs> Having a great conversation. Yeah. You know, I'm going to tell you something. If I ever agree to do another podcast with you, I'm going to make you show up with a cigar for me. So. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, if you want to order me a box, it's the El Rey de Mundo Robusto Larga. If you had to watch a movie, you had to. They were going to make you 12 times. Which movie would you pick? Part one. Part one? Part one, man. It's the best movie ever made. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Godfather Part One. Okay. Right. It is a great one. I always like to give the guests the stage. I let them say whatever they want to anyone who's tuned in. What would you say to anybody who's listening? Well, if you're listening to Paul's podcast, then you care about 
music and the arts and whatever the way to better education more expanded education training whatever the way to get us back to where we were where music and the arts was was a part of the the guaranteed curriculum along with wood shop and metal shop and should i go over there and tell that guy to keep it down no, it's okay. okay all right so let's get back to that because music is the doctor and it's it's what will fix you and it creates jobs like mine and passions like the guy we were talking about earlier jim schneider and it it makes it so we have a better world so let's clean it up and let's make it so that people can earn a living in the arts and and that's my story and i'm sticking to it my last question okay we can go on this is fun who is yeah but but can i just say this number one we need to have phone callers call in we, you need an assistant that, you know, like a pretty assistant that'll ask, you know, cheerful questions. <laughs> and then there's some improvements, but by and large, you ask great questions, and I really thank you for having me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Who is Eric Williams? Who are you at heart? Oh, man, that's an, that's an interesting question. I, I have a sister who is a, uh, a shrink, and that sounds like something uh, she would ask somebody, although she knows the answer. I am a guy who wants to continually learn how to be a nicer guy. I'm a guy, like I said in the beginning, I am the guy I wanted to be when I grew up. I'm big, brawny, I've got a big beard. I have, without a doubt, the best friends in the world. I mean, they're the best. And though, you know, Maybe I could have handled my career to be more profitable. I have a great sense of be here now. And, you know, my laptop's here, and I guess I could book a flight anywhere and go to Walmart and get a fishing pole if I had to. And um, I, I really think that, that I have a, I won't say people don't have, but I do have a great sense of what it takes to be a happy guy. It doesn't mean I'm not depressed half the time and I just, you know, oh, damn, I wish it didn't go that way. I could lose a few pounds, but I, I, re I really think that the things that draw us together are so much stronger than the things that drive us apart. And I really, I, I really want to try and, and, and get whoever I can influence back on that path. I'm, uh, I, I posted in Facebook. I'm just a stage manager here trying to show us all a good time, looking for clues at the scene of the crime and trying to show everybody a, a good time. Well spoken. Thanks. So if anyone wants more information, it's EWSSG.com. Yep, you can go to that, that site. There's some good fishing pictures there. There's, uh, I'll tell you one story I'm on, on my way out the door here. We were doing a show on the Lincoln Memorial for uh, one of the, well, as President Clinton's first inaugural. And it was January 20th when you're getting ready for inaugural. It's Washington, D.C. So it's colder than cold. It's freezing cold. Everybody's hanging out. And the people for that uh, event were, you know, the 
the brightest of the bright. I mean, there were some wonderful people there. And so I got to spend an afternoon during rehearsals with, with uh, people like uh, Tony Bennett and Ray Charles and Harry Belafonte and Lauren Bacall. And the two people that I think, other than Dean Martin and Jackie Gleason, are the two, and, and Tony Bennett, sorry, the two coolest people on the planet. One is Jack Nicholson, and the other is James Earl Jones. And so we're all huddled up. It's cold. The Quincy Jones is running the show, and I'm working for Quincy. And there was like a little bit of a timeout while everybody's getting everything together. And we're all huddled together, stagehands and, and, you know, these two incredible guys. So, you know, we're all on winter coats, but I mean, it's like, you know, 20 degrees below zero. It's freezing. We're all a bunch of concrete there. So, I mean, it, it just could not be any colder. So we're leaning against the scaffolding, and I said, Mr. Jones, come here. Come snuggle in with the rest of us. <laughs> and he says, I don't sit on cold steel. It gives me piles. And I said, you know, something about the way you just said that, I'm sure between you and Darth Vader, I'm going to think about you guys saying that for the rest of my life. But, uh, you know, so that, that sort of has stuck with me. I like it. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Thanks. It's been a blast. You're really good at this. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. All right, man. Goodbye.